G'day everyone, I'm Luke Tipple and welcome to the Shark Week podcast. This is where you get exclusive access to the stars of Shark Week and learn from the top scientific minds on the planet. I'm talking to Clark Gayford and Mark Erdman, stars of the Shark Week show, Shark Lockdown. G'day, hey Luke, how you going? Doing good. Uh, So I checked out the show, Uh, I was really impressed. It looked kind of cold and gnarly and some big sharks and a lot of fun. Um, Clark, perhaps you can kind of set up the scenario for us because this is a little bit unique. COVID hits, people are off the water, and you guys went out for an opportunity. Yeah, look, let's hope we never see those conditions again in our lifetime. But uh, New Zealand had one of the um, strictest lockdowns of of anywhere in the world. Everywhere shut down, um, uh, boats didn't go to sea. We all stayed indoors. And so coming out the other side of that gave us this really sort of unusual and unique opportunity where no sort of man made activity had been happening out on the water and uh and here we were heading out to see what on earth the uh, marine life had been up to yeah so uh tell me about uh COVID and how it affected new zealand because it is something that's pretty relevant and you guys seem to have killed it in terms of actual management yeah look i mean currently as i'm talking to you we're sitting at uh, 39 days of no community transmission we've actually eliminated it back to only cases caught at the border and we're actually enjoying right now um, freedoms that um, most of the rest of the world don't uh, don't have and you're constantly reminded of that when you see the news coming in from from overseas but at one point it did look like we were going the way of everyone else and so um, to, to have that freedom and to be able to go up to the water was um, appreciated by, by everyone. So uh, one of the things that I uh, was wondering about during COVID Obviously, people are off the water, but did they uh, did they stop all commercial operations and all like foreign fishing boats that might be in and near the waters? Like, why was there so little activity on the water? Um, yeah, so so there was still some um, fishing activity. Some of the boats that could uh, go out for fourteen days or longer, but they tended to be the the, the big offshore boats that were going out in other parts of uh, New Zealand. Down uh, down where we were, the activity, I mean, there's, there's hardly anyone lives down there uh, as it is. Um, and so the, uh, there was no sort of uh, markets for some of the fish being caught. So most, nearly all of those boats were uh, tied up at the wharf. Got it. Yeah, I thought that might be the case. So uh, tell me about where you went. It's, uh, is it the Favot Strait? Is that right? Favot Strait. Yeah, let me tell you about Favot Strait. I mean, uh, New Zealand is in a, a sort of a unique quiet part of the world as it is and yet if we go to the quiet unique part of New Zealand you would go down to Fovo Strait. Uh, There's only five million people in New Zealand and then right down the bottom we've got the strait that is the roughest passage of water in the country. It it comes up quite shallow between there and our third largest island and uh, when the wind blows and blow it does it comes up from Antarctica and, and just really howls through there. The waves just stand up on end, which makes it one of the uh, most dangerous, roughest passages of water that's taken more lives than just about anywhere. And uh, so the Fovo Strait separates, is it mainland from Stewart Island, right? Yeah. So, so New Zealand's this long sort of slim beast of a, of a country, two big main islands and one little island down the back. Um, we've, we've actually got more coastline than mainland China. And then separating our third island is a strait called Fovo Strait, which uh, comes up shallow and can get rough at a moment's notice. Yeah, so uh, Shark Week viewers will be familiar with Stewart Island, which is, you know, that island that's separated by it. Um, But Mark, what would we expect to find uh, in the strait? What type of animals, what type of sharks? 
Yeah, um, this area is a very rich area from a marine uh, animal perspective. And of course, we were operating specifically where there was a New Zealand fur seal colony, um, which is what brings in the white sharks. So you're definitely going to have seals, or you're going to have white sharks. Um, there are other sharks we could potentially see, from blue sharks, makos, that kind of thing. Um, and then a whole range of fish life, which makes it a very rich fishery as well, um, ranging from what they're all New Zealand endemic fishes, blue cod, trumpeters, terrakee, um, and the, the famous bluff oysters as well. And then we had albatross all around us as well. So really a, a very rich place from a marine perspective. Yeah, it looked pretty, uh, uh, pretty productive for sure. I mean, uh, you guys seem to be pretty close to land in a lot of the shots. Were you, is that just the nature of the strait or were you closer to mainland or closer to Stewart? Um, we were much closer to Stewart, um, actually off of a, a group of islands called the Muttonbird Islands, which, again, function as both a New Zealand fur seal colony as well as a, a nesting area for the, the muttonbirds. So um, interesting place. And indeed, almost all of our work was in, I would say, less than 30 feet, um, which is typical if you want to be looking for uh, white shark. Look, Luke, if I can just jump in there. As, as someone who's spent a, a lifetime spearfishing in fairly shallow water, you always feel quite comfortable when you're in that shallower water knowing that those bigger sharks perhaps don't come in that shallow. And yet at one point we were in probably three, four metres of water and we had a shark that was 4.2 metres uh, come in and around the boat. And I just remember thinking, oh, why are you so shallow? That's... That's reset my understanding of, of how close you guys come into the coast. Yeah, I was looking at some of that footage and, you know, I spearfish and dove all my life and much the same. You know, you feel if you can see the bottom and, you know, if you know where a retreat to shore is, at some level in your brain, you're like, I'm okay. You know, you go out deeper, you know what you're getting into. But seeing that many sharks of that size where you guys were in that shallow water, uh, it's kind of mind blowing. Uh, how many did you guys have around at one time? Uh, it, look, I think at one point, Mark, you'll probably able to know, I think we had, at one point, we had six at once uh, coming through the back of the boat. And uh, another, uh, uh, Kenner shared a story once where he, he saw a shark move through a passage um, of, of um, reef that had, was dry during low tide. So, the shark, so it was so shallow that the shark could come in and move through a period, uh, a passage of reef that uh, at, at high water had enough water, but at low tide was dry rock, which shows just how close onto the, uh, onto the rocks they come. Yeah, and I, I would just simply add about white sharks, you know, again, I'm also a spear fisherman, and, and it's definitely reset my ideas. But, uh, you know, we've done a fair bit of, of satellite tagging around uh, New Zealand with white sharks, and the thing which comes out from those satellite tags is that they spend over 50% of their time in, in 10 meters or less. And in fact, they frequently, many of the animals are spending 20% of their time literally on the surface. So these are, you know, when they're adults and they're in there or, or, or big juveniles, they are right up in the shallows and, and that's where they're eating. So, um, yeah, that, that's not going to protect you from white sharks by any means. Well, and, 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 and Mark, we have to talk to this, Luke, but the, the wildlife was giving us the best indication of all as to where the sharks were. And they talk, they talk about it being the 100 metre dash where the seals will come down off the rocks and they just absolutely porpoise and, and skip across the surface uh, or dive down and just go flying across the bottom to get out of that zone that is in close to land so that they're out into uh, deeper water where they feel safer. Yeah. So, uh, and you guys are out there specifically looking for larger sharks and there was uh, some terminology there of the 747 sharks 
Mark, is that relating to one specific shark or just a class of massive sharks? Um, well, it, the specific name was one that was a nickname that was given to one particularly really large female that was seen around Stewart Island by um, a number of, of fishermen. Um, and, and so we were looking for females in that size class, which aren't normally seen there, I might add. You know, typically during the, the main summer season, it's predominantly males that are there. And then the bigger females start to come in towards the end. Uh, and we had indications, again, really from the fishermen, that if you got into to winter time, which is when we were operating, that we had this opportunity to potentially see some really big females there, potentially in, in breeding conditions. So uh, that's what really what we were looking for. So the guys are sitting on their boat, they're out there in the strait, they're in fairly shallow water, and they set up an experiment to see if they could attract the sharks to the boat. Okay, so Mark, you've got a theory that uh, different sounds can bring sharks in closer. Tell me about that experiment. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, white sharks have an amazing sensory system all around, certainly that they have good eyesight, a great sense of smell, but also, believe it or not, a really good sense of hearing. And so what we were doing here is we were trying to play a couple of different sounds with underwater speakers that we thought might bring them in. Um, the first sound that we tried was actually the sound of a cod boat, um, one of the main fishing boats around uh, uh, Stewart Island, which typically these sharks will, will follow around um, because they're able to then chew on the, 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 um, uh, the frames or the carcasses of the fish after they've been filleted and tossed over. Um, and that seemed, at least from what I saw, to actually have some uh, quite an effect on the sharks. We also tried um, bottlenose dolphins, which are a potential prey item for white sharks. And then we tried uh, some uh, sounds of humpback mother, humpback whale mother with her calf that Kinna and I had uh, recorded when we were in Fiji together. Um, and it turns out that New Zealand sharks actually do go up into the tropics, New Zealand white sharks do. Um, and so we thought, hey, you know, this might be something that will get them excited as well. And uh, which sound had the most effect on them in terms of attracting them at least? Well, I was up on the surface actually operating the, the speakers. So it was Clark was the one who got to see what was going on. But from what I was hearing, it sounded like it was the, uh, the cod boat that actually had the most uh, impact upon these sharks and definitely changed their behavior. But I should turn it over to Clark. You know, much better. Well, and, and so this is where um, Captain Skeptical can come in here. Well, Captain Skeptical, pre this um, experiment taking place, because I was like, oh, here we go. You know, this is, uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't hold out great hope um, going into that for, for a result. But I, I stand as someone that, that went into the water and saw it with my own eyes. The, um, the, the, the sound that had the most effect and really did change uh, the behaviour with uh, the whites that we saw um, was the cod boats. Um, as soon as that came out through that um, underwater speaker and blasted out, a noticeable change um, in behaviour. Real sort of um, became interested. Sort of pecs went down slightly. You know, started to get quite flicky. Started um, um, doing a pattern of sort of protecting the front of the cage as if this was a, a food or feeding opportunity about to present itself. And and when you think about it, it does make sense. Those um, cod boats have been working that Fovo Strait area for, for probably 100 years, and some of those boats have been the same boats that have been there since day one, and they've got this very sort of rhythmic throbbing sound, which um, would, would um, be a pattern that would be very easily um, identifiable. And a lot of those boats are um, gilling and gutting the fish that they catch every day over the side. So it is a, a, an easy feeding um, experience for the sharks to turn up to, or at the very least it, it associates that sound with, with the smell that's coming over the side of the boat. Yeah, that'd make a lot of sense. Um, a couple of years ago, we did a, well, somewhat similar kind of thing. We threw a speaker in 
and uh, tested the effect of different types of music on sharks because there was a shark diving operator that I used to know and he used to play ACDC underwater to sharks and he was convinced, he could, well, I think it was a marketing tactic anyway, but he'd say that they like rock music. So we're like, let's test that out. And with all the different types of music that we found, uh, the sharks are most attracted to like boy band pop music, which made okay. me really disappointed. <laughs> those, um, those Australian sharks, Luke, by any chance? No, they were Bahamas sharks, actually. So maybe Bahamas they're a little sharks. more sort of into the, the treble. And <laughs> ah, I see. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. I think... Um, if it was uh, a New Zealand shark to be into to drum and bass, perhaps um, I would have picked Australian sharks more for ACDC. It's, it probably just varies around the world. Yeah, the the rock music didn't do anything for them. Actually, uh, funny you mention it though. The the drum and bass or sort of techno-y stuff, they seem to yeah. like that as well. Um, kind of charged them up. I think it was really just to do with the bass, and that kind of brings you back to you know what you're talking about. You know that rhythmic throbbing. Um, they could definitely get behind that. Were there any of the sounds that uh, deterred them that sent them away? Um, no, no, no. That's the thing with the with the five straight shark. They're uh, they're certainly very um, inquisitive. I mean, it was it was so um, quiet while we were down there. I mean, we barely saw another boat, even though boats were now back out on the water while we were there. And and so I guess we were just this big sort of party out there. And and once they turned up, they were very keen to see what was uh, what we were all about. There was something that had me curious because the kind of premise was. Um, maybe there's not many boats out there so the sharks might come back in um but they seem to be attracted to the boat noise so mark what's the what's the distinction there what am i missing in the in the the concept as you say a lot of these things are it's it's a we're all making hypotheses and guesses anyway but i think um without question we know that at least some of the sharks are attracted to the to the cod boats because of the fact they're getting a free meal off the back and and so that's and and what that means is that in a situation where there's no cod boats out there when we come in we're the only game in town and they're going to come in and, and see us um but i think that overall and this certainly is now the longer that we're getting covid related stories from around the world um it's very clear that with the huge decrease in marine traffic that you're seeing a lot more of the megafauna, the really big animals coming into areas where they've been absent for years, just because for the most part, big animals don't like a whole lot of human activity uh, in the water. That's just a, a, a fact. And even though there's areas of the world where we regularly cavort with manta rays or whale sharks or things, what we're seeing right now around the world is that in the absence of lots of tourism boats, lots of you know uh, cargo boats, et cetera, that those animals are showing up in much bigger numbers in shallow water. And I think that's what we were thinking as well. We do know, I mean, another important point here is that, um, you know, Stewart Island is well known as a place to go and see a lot of three meter, 3.5 meter white sharks. And, but we were looking for 747s and 747s, you know, it's typical when you deal with bigger predators that the absolute biggest of the predators are the ones which, you know, they've made it to that that um, size because they're they're a little bit cautious, and um, and so that's what we were expecting. Is that now that there hasn't been a lot of uh, sound on the water, that perhaps we'd be able to get closer to those really big ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and look, we're also uh, we're also in a really unique position in New Zealand, where as we came down through our alert levels with COVID, uh, at one of the levels you were allowed out on the water um, in non-motorized craft, so. Um, a, a kayak fisherman, for example, could go out fishing. And, and I heard 
um, a- a- anecdotal stories, including from people I knew who went out and uh, they, they, I mean, they talked about all the, the marine and the fish life much, much closer to the coast in their experience. But two of them um, that I know had quite scary encounters with sharks, including one who fished kayaks for 15 years. And he got so roughed up and bumped out, uh, bumped around by a big shark that he'd never had an experience with before that he came in and, and put his kayak up for sale and said he'd never go to sea in a kayak again. So just hearing little anecdotes like that and seeing the stories around the world of um, dolphins turning up in the canals in Venice uh, and the like showed that um, just by sort of relaxing all of the noise that was going on around the coast gave these animals a, a new level of confidence to, to come in on the, uh, on the coast and explore a bit more. Yeah, um, I think that's it's amazing how much influence we have on on you know the marine life and nature in general. Because you know, with what we do, we keep hearing stories like that. I'm like, it's absolutely incredible how much we mess up this planet sometimes. But uh, okay, so you're in you're in that shallow water. You're attracting sharks in, um, Clark. What types of uh, sizes and sexes were you seeing of the great whites? For me, the trip was fascinating because I've been down there once before but much earlier in the season and pretty much all of the whites we saw on that trip were males and so I I was expecting um, to see a lot of males but it, I mean that's what, what makes part of the adventure so good is that normally you wouldn't go down so late in the season um, you'd want to go down to maximize your chance of finding sharks but being there later in the season and again you'd need to do another 10 years of, of research to, to work out if this was a, a, a thing. Suddenly we had a mix of males and females in the water and the females were were, were bigger and uh, they were often often there sort of um, just at the back of shot or just out of range. And on a couple of occasions we, we saw some, some pretty big girls. Yeah, I was curious about that because it's very common to see a single sex of sharks aggregating. But to see a mixing like that, you start thinking... What opportunities are they looking for being around each other? You know, and that, that leads us down that path of mating and all types of uh, fun stuff to talk about. But you guys are actually out there to, to get some accurate measurements. And Mark, you, uh, you came up with a pretty good uh, theory uh, with that whole ruler thing. Explain that to me. You know, with the, the advent of drones uh, all around the world nowadays, we've started to use them a lot in my research in the tropics. Um, and we're using them very effectively to measure manta rays that are up on the surface, where we simply have a floating tube uh, that's you know measured across it. And, and when the mantas are truly on the surface, we can take a photo from the, the drone and, and um, you know measure them right right there. And I just simply suggested to Kenna that we might try this with the white sharks. And he immediately poo-pooed me. He said, "Well, they'll be up on the surface, but they're going to just attack and thrash your your, your ruler." And I said, oh, well, I've got another idea there. Um, we need to put markings on it anyway. So I'll just make them big black bands uh, every 10 centimeters along this tube. And therefore, we might be able to mimic uh, a banded sea snake, which there's a lot of hypotheses out there, a lot of, of data to show that um, that's, that's something which is just kind of baked into many marine animals that banded sea snakes are extremely poisonous. And it, it seems to just be in their DNA to try to avoid that. Now, Clark was extremely skeptical of that notion, I might add. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I think that on, on balance, the evidence seemed to be in my favor. And, uh, and we did get some excellent measurements uh, from these floating shark rulers. So the, the black bands weren't on there before. That's not part of your normal methodology? No, no. Normally I, I thought we... it was a visual reference for the drones when I was looking at it. 
Well, it, it, it actually is. I mean, it perfectly works that way. But normally what we're using are much smaller markings. Actually, When I'm dealing with manta rays, they're, they're not six meters long, right? So um, we're, we're, the drone is down lower and we're able to use smaller markings. But in this case, I just really amped up the markings and made it look kind of like a banded sea snake. It certainly seems a lot better option to what we used to do, like swimming along uh, whale sharks and stuff, just with a, you know, a three-foot piece of pipe, <laughs> trying to get right. as close as you can. <laughs> Quick, take a photo, and uh, and try to get that size from it. Um, but you guys actually did manage to get quite a few measurements on some pretty large sharks. And Clark, you were down there with them. Um, how big were they? Um, was it typical for the area? Uh, yeah, look, and look, that's what was so interesting about what what Mike was actually doing because. I mean, you guys will know as, as, as people have spent time in the water, judging size underwater is one of the hardest things to do. And of course, fish always grow and they're always much bigger when you come back to land. So to have a definitive measurement was, was great because um, particularly on a couple of the sharks that we, we recognized or could recognize the markings on, because once we had the measurements on that, then you could use that as a reference point for when even bigger females came in. So in your brain, you're going, wow, that shark was 4.2 meters, but that shark that just came in, was a heck of a lot bigger. So how on earth, you know, how much bigger was that animal there? Um, so the, the ones that we got, like um, some of the, the typical um, animals that we had coming in, and, and forgive me for not converting this to feet, were around 4.2 um, metres. If anyone can do the rough translation on that, I'd love to uh, love to hear it. But, uh, yeah, we, we definitely saw bigger sharks, and it would be a fun exercise to go back with a bigger ruler and some more time to see if we could uh, bring them in close as well. Well, so you're admitting the ruler works, huh? <laughs> well, again, Mark, it was, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know if we had enough of a control assessment and enough time <laughs> to work out if it uh, was working all the way through. But, hey, let's go back and try it again. It looked pretty good to me. Um, but then the guys rigged up a pretty special cage to get as close as they could to some of those bigger sharks. Clark, the snack box, what did you think when yeah. you first saw it? I just, I thought it was a, a work of art, uh, just, and I, to be fair, knowing Kinner, I was surprised that he could even come up with um, such a concept, proving that lockdown has been good for some people. Um, it's just, I mean, just the, the, the engineering and the fabrication and, and the concept itself is just that perfect mix of, of just being um, uh, bizarre and dangerous, uh, which I like a little bit of, and, and yet functional. Yeah, it uh, it looked kind of like a abalone diver's cage on steroids, and, and just such a beautiful touch with the with the little um, scooters and on the side. And and what was what was um, so New Zealand uh, about this loop was the fact that he had never even put it in the water until we got <laughs> until we got down there with the great whites. You know, oh, we'll just go just go down to the beach and we'll just test it out. No, 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 no. We'll just we'll just go out. We'll bring some whites up. We'll throw it in the water and we'll see if it works. And that. I think that in a nutshell is, is, is quite a New Zealand thing where we just we'll just give it a go, mate, and see if it'll work. <laughs> I got to admit, I was watching it, and as soon as I saw him talking about the flotation um, on the outside of it and using buoys basically that could just be bitten, my eyebrows raised up. I'm like, that's going to go pretty badly, and uh, and it did go kind of badly. <laughs> uh, Mark, perhaps you can tell me about that incident there. Uh, There's a bump, a bite, something like that, but it rendered him pretty incapacitated for a little while. Yeah, and it was um, it was one of these things which you know the the whole experience had been quite surreal up until then. You know, we're in a cage and there's these huge animals around. It's almost kind of a game. But then, when when Kenna launched the snack box, you know, I think Clark, you'll you'll agree with me here that 
it's a cool piece of art, but at the same time, it's a bloody little cage that's swimming around amongst these animals, which are bigger than it. Um, and so we were, you know, we were a little skeptical about how that was going to work. And sure enough, the second that that snack box was tooling around, the shark behavior just changed dramatically. I mean, they, they just, they, they were targeted in, you know, that they wanted a piece of that. And sure enough, um, in one of the, you know, the, the first uh, runs of the thing, um, we had a big animal come in and just attack it, you know, to just, just really ragdoll this thing. And the, the crazy thing is that um, Clark and I had just gotten into the water to see it. We didn't even have our main cameraman underwater yet. And it just happened right in front of our eyes. And to be honest with you, it, it went from surreal to very real, right, you know, in, in a millisecond. And, you know, my heart started, I didn't know what was going to happen here because here's this big animal just ragdolling it. And, um, you know, then suddenly the, the buoyancy was gone. There's a huge burst of air as the, uh, the buoyancy broke. Um, and then the shark swam off momentarily. Uh, and yeah, we, we didn't know what was going on. Yeah. Um, I mean, those, uh, those scooters on the side alone are a big attractant for sharks. You know, we've, we've put them out before and just had the scooters even just get attacked as such a big electromagnetic field and all the noise and everything. Um, they don't seem to like it at all, but, um, Clark, perhaps you can tell me, uh, you know, Kinna seemed like in a pretty precarious situation there for a while. You guys were watching it all, right? Look, it's, um, I mean, the word surreal is thrown around all too um, casually and freely these days, but to, to be down underwater and to, to see a mate of yours in this craft that he's sort of concocted in his brain, brought to life, and then is literally testing uh, in these shark-infested waters, and then to see what it is designed to protect him against go, you know, happen, um, you, you, you're almost kind of disconnected because you're just so used to seeing that on TV and not in real life, and yet here he was, and and as as Mark said, and and if I can just point out that um, forget forget Mark's ruler to see the sharks up next to the cage to see this this guy who's not a small guy stretched out like that that was a a real because your human brain can see another person and then you see this animal and how much bigger it is than him that's when it really comes home how much you know how massive and the bulk and the size of these animals um, are. It was incredible. But then to see it do what, what it done, because remember, we'd, we'd been in the water um, before with these animals and they'd always been, you know, fairly, fairly calm, fairly sort of um, um, well-behaved. But, man, that attitude can can just change in a, in a moment like that. And they are ambush predators, so they're designed to just cruise and then go when they need to. And that's exactly... Uh, it's exactly what happens, and uh, it's just yeah, it's it's one of those uh, things in your head that you'll you'll never unsee once you've seen it. Yeah, especially when you can imagine your mate and you're looking at him and you're like, oh, you could just totally fit inside that animal there. <laughs> this this could yeah. go really badly. Was there any? Uh, I don't know how long that took to take place, but it looked like he kind of was just okay with sitting down for a little while, waiting for the shark to disappear. How long was he uh, incapacitated on the bottom there, waiting for a rescue plan or a way out? Well, we were um, luckily we were uh, we, we were on comm, so we were talking mm. to him, and, and it was a case of him just trying to establish um, his stability or, or to get himself um, in a position to, to come back up. I mean, he, yeah. there was obviously um, there were plans B, C, D, and then if it all goes wrong, uh, F, and, and the form of other airbags and, and yeah. uh, a float release on a line. Uh, to, to come up, or if it had really gone badly, we could have manoeuvred our cage over and lower ourselves uh, down to him. But 
I honestly didn't think that we would we would get to that position. I, I got a little bit relaxed with those sharks, and then they reminded us uh, right there and then why well, you can just never take your eyes off them, and you can certainly never turn your back on a great white shark. So, Mark, tell me about the, the stereoscope camera, because I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, this is a, a device which has been used uh, for measuring fish all around the world now. There's paired stereo video cameras uh, on a, a, a piece of PVC um, separated by a meter. And um, you can use the, the two, they're basically two GoPros that are running. And you simply use what's known as the parallax error between the two looking at the same animal. And from that, you can then make some very accurate measurements of, uh, of the size. And so we did take that down. At, um, we, we attached it to the snack box for a while. Um, and then we also did some handheld uh, with that. And that allowed us to get quite a few measurements. Um, because again, my shark ruler up on the surface only works when the sharks are actually swimming on the surface. Whereas with these, uh, these cameras, we could do it with any shark that was under the under the water. So got a lot of good measurements from that. Yeah. And you guys did manage to find some pretty large sharks. What was what was the largest of the trip? Was it something that you could absolutely verify as being huge? Well, the yes, we could definitely verify that they were huge. Um, I would say that the, the issue that we had is that again, the bigger ones, as I mentioned earlier, tend to be a little bit more cautious. And so the really monster 747s, of which we did see a couple, were always kind of right out at the edge uh, of visibility. And Kenna got a chance to see them much more uh, closely than we did while he was in his little snack box. Um, for Clark and I in our cage, we could see them moving, you know, kind of out. 100 feet to 150 feet away from us. Um, the ones that we were able to measure, the biggest one that we got, I believe, was 4.6 meters, which is still, you know, 16 feet or something. That's a big animal. Um, but they were bigger ones, again, further out. Um, and I, I would add another thing, which I thought was fascinating. One of the males that we kept seeing over and over and over again, one that uh, Clark uh, affectionately named Bitey, uh, was a male, about 4.2 meter male, 15 footer, um, that had a huge bite mark scar on its side. Um, clearly, it was a male that had attempted to mate with a, a, a female um, that was much bigger than he was um, at 15 feet. And she um, could have probably just bitten him in half, but uh, instead just gave him a, a little, you know, um, spanking, so to speak. And But this scar was amazing. We actually measured the, um, the width of the bite, and I believe it was close to a meter across, if I recall correctly, uh, uh, Clark. But yeah, so we had some big sharks out there, no doubt about it. Was that a, uh, a fresh scarring event, do you think? Again, I'm not 100% sure, but I would have said it's probably um, a couple of months old. It, it was no longer red and, and bleeding by any means, but it, you could absolutely see that it was within the last probably three to six months. It's kind of hard to say sort of blanket, of course, but would their migratory patterns put them in that area at that time, perhaps for mating? Certainly possible, certainly possible. So um, I should add that, you know, New Zealand only one there's only one um, observation of what appears to have been a mating event there. Um, there's lots of evidence of um, females with mating scars and males like this one that uh, were rebuked in their mating attempts. Um, but we actually don't know where they, where they, uh, where they mate in, um, in New Zealand. We know more or less where they pup. Um, that's all around the North Island. Um, all the bigger uh, harbors there tend to have young of year, you know, 1.2, 1.5 meter uh, great white sharks in abundance there. Um, but the mating, we presume, happens in the South Island around uh, some of these seal colonies. And we were particularly thinking it would happen in the, the, the winter months when we were there. Um, we didn't get a chance to see it actively happening, but uh, we did see, I, as I recall, Clark, we saw some males amorously following some of the bigger females. Yeah, mm. yeah. 
Yeah, we did. And I mean, and look, that's what makes uh, it so exciting. Um, there's just so many questions that we don't have the answers to yet. We can, we can hypothesize about what we think that they get up to. And of course, there's the holy grail of, of, of witnessing or, or capturing a, uh, a mating event. But, um, I mean, I guess the, the way that the males all show up first and they're just full of testosterone and they're being lads in a bar, as you will. If you were a female going into said bar, it's probably the, the last thing you want is to, to have all that attention. So maybe it does happen right at the end of the season. Um, once they've calmed down or sorted out a pecking order, or, or maybe it happens just somewhere else, not quite in the middle of, of, uh, of that particular, um, hotspot. Uh, who knows? We've, we've, we're still in the dark about most of that. Is there, uh, is there any data to show when the pupping might be occurring up north? Um, that's an interesting question. And I think, uh, at least, uh, from what I know from my colleagues at the Department of Conservation, um, the young of the year tend to be, what we call young of the year, tend to be seen um, typically in the kind of February, March, April timeframe. Um, and so, yeah, they're probably giving birth, I would think, at the beginning of the New Zealand summer, which makes sense. Obviously, with many animals, if you're giving birth, you want to give birth at a time when the, the, the young have the opportunity to feed. So um, you, you wouldn't want to do it when it's slim pickings out there. So I think that that's pretty much what's known. Although, um, again, there's so much that we don't know yet about them. Um, and every every investigation into them shows all kinds of new things. I mean, New Zealand white sharks... Uh, you know, they, they typically, towards the middle of winter, they head off for warmer waters and they show up in Fiji and Tonga and New Caledonia and, and the Great Barrier Reef, um, all looking for warmer water and potentially humpback whales. So, um, God, they're, they're really amazing animals when you look at them. Yeah, let's, let's talk about white sharks in New Zealand's waters, because I know like uh, Stewart Island uh, is, in some people's mind, fairly controversial because they've got the, the shark diving op, uh, operation down there and stuff. What is the general sort of public's opinion of white sharks? Clark, perhaps you can take that. <laughs> um, well, probably uh, the same as most people around the world who grew up on a diet of Jaws movies and, uh, uh, and, and you know, had, had all of these, um, uh, you know, attributes put onto them. And, and most of them are, are deserved. But, um, you know, when you're dealing with an apex predator like that at the top of the food chain and these these animals can take sort of I don't know, Mark probably knows but close to 30 years or more to reach sexual maturity you realize that they are particularly uh, vulnerable to um, to predation or being tangled up in, in nets and everything else and so they are very much deserving of, of our protection. We actually moved to um, protect great whites completely in New Zealand I think in about 2007 and it, it looks like that they do have a a stable um, population. Um, there's sort of some anecdotal evidence that um, some of their movements have changed as our seal colonies come um, come back up. They're moving back to more of a traditional diet. So they're coming in closer to the coast. Um, but yeah, as, as you mentioned before, they're, they're a fascinating creature that, that do sort of peel off from what we, we assume as two separate um, uh, groups, one, one heading off basically one coast and one going up off, off the other coast. And that seems to match up with the humpback whale migration, because I think from my understanding is that one in every five humpback whale calves doesn't make it, um, and and they're born at 1.8 tonnes, and so that's 1.8 tonnes of, of protein, and so these sharks just have this sort of route where they come down to Stewart Island over summer, meet, mingle, maybe um, snack on the odd fur seal, and then peel off and, and chase whales um, through our winter, which is a, a, a heck of a life if you think about it. 
It sounds pretty ideal to me, to be honest. <laughs> um, white sharks in the movement and sharks in general are so tied to prey items. I'm curious about your comment then, and perhaps uh, either of you can take this, but Mark, you might have the data on it. Um, how has the migration changed with and the changes in the sea lions or seals? And what made those changes? Yeah, so um, what we know is that uh, pre-human existence in New Zealand, uh, the New Zealand fur seals were basically all around uh, the, the North and South Island. Um, and of course they were actively hunted um, to the point now, well, uh, at least let's say 30, 40 years ago, the main two remaining big colonies were around Stewart Island and the Chatham Islands. And that um, perhaps with no surprises, the two main aggregation areas that we know now for large great whites. Um, but as Clark noted, you know, the New Zealand fur seal has been under protection for a very long time, I think since 1953, if I'm not mistaken. And they are um, expanding their, their population. And so you are starting to see seal colonies all around. Actually, just last week, um, I was at uh, uh, Clark's normal summer stomping grounds, Mahia, um, and uh and that area now has quite a few seals around it. Um, <clears throat> I was doing some uh, crayfish diving out there and, uh, and, and Paula abalone diving. And uh, right about that time, I got a, a brand new paper on Australian uh, satellite tagging of white sharks. And interestingly enough, um, <clears throat> we were wondering because we had really low visibility while we were there and we were kind of thinking, looking around, uh, this is a little bit sketchy at times. Um, and this, this new, 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 Z new Australian satellite tagging paper showed very clearly that a number of the sharks tagged in Australia came across, hung out in Stewart Island, and then went straight to Mahia. Um, so, uh, so, you know, Mark, we get a fisherman, I don't need to hear that. That's sort of, I don't need to hear that sort of, sort of research, thanks. Ah. <laughs> I, I think the, the take home from this is we just need Clark on the boat more often so that more sharks show up, right? They seem to follow you around a bit. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear yeah that's a spooky place to to dive um uh down i know exactly where, where, where you're talking about there mark and so yeah oh it's one of those things that you don't um uh, look like I, I i had sort of gone spearfishing my whole life kind of kind, I, well i'd like to say fearlessly but i think it was more from a place of ignorance i mean we have had so few um, fatal shark attacks in New Zealand. I think we, we've we've had about one every every forty years. But we've noticed um, that there is just there is an increasing number of of other types of sharks. And and there's now I've had to change my habits when it comes to spearfishing in New Zealand. I used to just um, swim along with all my fish behind me, but I've, I've I lose them too often to sharks now because of the change of uh, bronze whalers and and we get markers uh, coming in in much greater numbers. And of course, it it, it stands to make perfect sense that the great whites are uh, in as well and and uh, yeah maybe it's, maybe you just get a bit more uh, mature and cautious as you get older but it starts playing over in your mind when you end up in those big um, spooky spooky out floating out in, in open water areas yeah um, is there anything you guys would like to add white shark conservation related anything like that look you know I think uh, New Zealand as as um Clark had mentioned uh, protected white sharks back in 2007. Um, and so at this moment in time, it seems that if anything, their, their populations are increasing here. They're, they're certainly stable across, you know, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Australia also having protected them. So I think that uh, the white sharks are actually looking, if anything, in pretty good shape um, around New Zealand and Australia. Um, we have a couple of other sharks, I think four other species in New Zealand, which are protected, including basking sharks and whale sharks and oceanic white tips. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I, I guess one which is now being discussed is actually the, the Mako, Mako shark, as we say here, um, that recently received CITES protection. Uh, and in New Zealand, they seem to be in quite big numbers. Um, but there is a discussion, I guess, about whether or not they might uh, warrant uh, special protection as well. At this moment in time, you can catch them here, uh, although they're under a quota management system. Um, so overall, you know, I think that uh, shark conservation in New Zealand is um, pretty good compared to many parts of the, the Asia region where I work. Um, you know, you're not allowed to fin here. That's been illegal since 2014. Um, I don't know, Clark, you, you've been involved in the fishing scene for a very long time here. What would you say about shark conservation in New Zealand? I think he's. I think he said it um, pretty well there, Mark. And it's a, a yeah. There is an interesting conversation going on uh, around Marco and Mako um, uh, at the moment. Um, they, there's been a noticeable increase. I haven't. Well, I'm saying anecdotally. I've certainly seen a lot more since the uh, finning um, was banned in 2014, and you're seeing a lot more coming through in that sort of younger, smaller size class. I call them the little torpedoes that um, can be quite a, a, an issue when you're spearfishing, and they suddenly turn up. Um, so that that is that is encouraging um, because it just it's such an important part of the ecology of your ocean. Um, I always liken New Zealand to an agar jelly dish where we're in the Goldilocks zone. Where we're not too cold and we're not too hot, and, and that soupy murky water that Mark was um, talking about earlier is, is the sort of the beginnings of the harbingers of life that just um, is spread out through the food chain. And of course, sitting there right at the top are our, our wonderful um, sharks, and we've got so many sort of different, exciting different types and and varieties, and they're very much deserved of our protection. And it's nice to see response happen that they're no longer demonised and and just you know caught and discarded because they're they're considered um, pests or or just something that should be should be uh, messed around with. So I think we we we've developed a healthy respect for sharks, and and that um, various um, rules and regs have been tightened where they need to to um to afford these wonderful creatures um, uh, a little bit more of an easy easy run in life. Yeah, here here. Well, I appreciate you guys going out in uh, some pretty gnarly cold conditions and finding those sharks. It was awesome to see big, healthy sharks down there. And I hope you guys go back because there's a lot more to be done down there. <laughs> that sounds like a, it sounds like an invitation. I'll be back there in a second. It's, uh, it's just such a wild, cool place in the world. Mark Clark, thanks for stopping by the Daily Bite. And if you'd like to continue hearing from the top shark experts in the world, tune into the rest of the Daily Bite podcasts. Thanks for listening.